you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. For uh, this week and next week, we're going to be talking about the church. It's going to be kind of a two-part message. And today, I want to talk about unity. The church is better together. You know, I remember when I was a young kid, um, I remember one night in particular, I was lying in bed, and my father came into the room, and he sat at the foot of my bed, and he placed his hand on my body that was unmoving because I was pretending to be asleep. And my dad laid his hand on my body, and he was kind of like, Blake, are you awake? And I, I didn't respond. I was pretending to be asleep. But he began to pray over me as I was sleeping. And I got to hear from my father's lips the desires that he had for my life. He began to pray for my spiritual life. God, would you encounter my son? He began to pray for my future wife. Whoever he meets in the future, would she be a woman of God? And I got to hear these intimate, this intimate prayer from my father of his desires for my life. And as I'm laying there in bed, I'm, I'm hearing these words and it's just touching me. Well, this morning, as we read John chapter 17, you are invited into a similar encounter. Because in John chapter 17, Jesus prays one of the last prayers before going to the cross. So this, this uh, chapter takes place after the Last Supper. So Jesus has just broken bread with the disciples. And Judas has uh, gone off to betray him. And he's making his way to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. But before, it's in between these two, these two moments in Scripture that he gathers his disciples around. And he begins to pray over his disciples. Come on, how many of you would like to hear Jesus praying over you? Well, guess what? In John chapter 17, he does, because after he prays for his disciples, he prays that the Lord would protect them, and he prays that he would be with them, and that they would, uh, they would preach the gospel in confidence, and then he switches gears in John chapter 17, verse 20, and he prays for all of those who would come to believe in him, and so it's this intimate moment where we get to hear Jesus's desire for the church, for you and I, his desire for us, his, his, his last prayer before going to the cross is for you and I. And you would think that Jesus would probably pray for something like courage, right? Because the church is going to need courage moving forward. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to be thrown into the Colosseum and ripped apart by lions, and they're going to have to spread the gospel across the world. You know, you'd think that Jesus would be praying for courage for his church, or maybe Jesus would pray for faith. God, would you give them faith? That when they lay hands on the sick, would they recover? And God, fill them with faith to move mountains and to, and to do greater things than they saw me do. Or maybe you would think that Jesus would pray for health. God, help them live long lives so that their, their gospel message can go across the earth and they could spread the gospel as to, uh, to as many people as possible. But Jesus doesn't pray for courage. He doesn't pray for faith. He doesn't pray for health. You know what Jesus prays for, for his church? That they would be one. That they would be unified. He says, and we're going to read this together in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. Let me get there with you. I'm reading from the NIV translation. <clears throat> this is what Jesus says. I'm going to start at verse 20. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. He's talking about his disciples because he just got done praying for his disciples. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known to them in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself might be in them. One of Jesus' last prayers before going to the cross, he gathers his disciples around and he prays that they would be one. Church, here's the key thought for this morning. The key thought is this. The church of Jesus has little power when it has little unity. But the church is the most powerful when it is united, when it comes together. I want to talk about some truths about unity that we see here in John chapter 17. But first I want to talk about what unity is not. Unity is not pretending to agree about everything. How many of you know that there are conflicts in church? That we have different, we have different opinions. There's, there's different mindsets. There's different beliefs. We quarrel about topics like are tattoos of the devil or are they not of the devil? Right? Should I drink alcohol? Or should I vote Democrat or Republican? Should I take the vaccine or should I not take the vaccine? You know, church unity is not pretending to agree about everything. Because Jesus knew that we wouldn't agree about everything. In fact, in Romans chapter 14, Paul addresses the church in Rome. And he sees that there are some who are in the faith that believe that it's okay now because the law had forbid uh, that Jews eat pork, that they eat certain types of meats. And now there are people in the faith that have begun eating pork and they've begun eating certain types of meats. And, and there's another group of people who are in the faith who believe that it's still wrong. And, and, and Paul comes and he confronts both and he says, listen, if you believe that you shouldn't eat meat still, then don't sear your conscience. Continue to live out the convictions that God has placed in your heart. Don't allow your conscience to be seared. And then he addresses the other side of the camp and he says, but if you do eat meat, don't eat it in front of these people. Don't cause them to stumble. Don't judge them. Don't put them down. I know you don't agree on this topic, but the overarching thing about the church is we're supposed to love each other through our disagreements. We're not always going to agree on every single thing. So unity is not pretending to agree on everything. Unity is also not the absence of conflict, right? A united church uh, it doesn't mean that they never have conflict. In fact, there are entire chapters in the Bible devoted to church conflict resolution where Paul addresses the church and says, here's how you resolve conflict in a healthy way. In fact, uh, Paul, he rebukes Peter in Galatians chapter 2. They have conflict where, where uh, Peter is, is, uh, is, is eating with his Gentile brothers until his Jewish brothers would come around. And then he would stop eating with his Gentile brothers because he didn't want to be associated them, with them when his Jewish brothers were around. And Paul rebukes Peter in Galatians chapter 2 and says, what are you doing? You're being two-faced. Don't do this. Accept your Gentile brothers just as you accept your Jewish brothers. They had conflict. See, Jesus knew that his followers would not always agree, and they would have conflict at times. And there's two sides to the same coin. Our differences cause us at times to disagree. 
and to argue. But our differences also make us the body of Christ. We are all uniquely gifted and have separate callings upon our lives. Did you know that you have something to offer the body of Christ that nobody else in the body of Christ has to offer? That we complete each other. We make each other one. We make each other whole. And without you and your contribution to the body of Christ, we aren't a full body of Christ. We need one another. We're going to talk about this in 1 Corinthians, or where Paul writes to the Corinthian church about how, how the church is supposed to look like a body, that we're all many parts, but we're supposed to come together as one. We wouldn't be the body of Christ if God had made infinite hands or infinite feet. Instead, each one of us are equipped to contribute something that only we can offer. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You know, I, don't, I like the New Living Translation. Can we put it up on the screen here? Here's the New Living Translation. I'm going to read it from the screen because I have the NIV up here. It says this. But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it had only one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen, while the more honorable parts do not require this special care. So God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. Did you catch that last verse? This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. Verse 26 says, if one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it, and if one part is honored, all parts are glad. See, our differences help us care for one another. Jesus knew how difficult. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to watch his church take off, and he thinks to himself, what's the one thing that they need? What's the one thing that's really going to keep this body together, that's going to keep this movement going? What's going to be the one thing that they're going to need more than anything else? Jesus knew that the church would need unity moving forward. It was like Jesus was saying to himself in that moment, if they could just come together and support one another and care for one another, then everything else would be taken care of. They would give each other the courage that they need. They would build each other up in their faith. They would sharpen each other. They would pray for one another, lay hands on the sick, and they would be healthy. If the church would just come together, then all these other needs would be met. They would be taken care of. So Jesus, his desire for his church is that they would be one, that they would come together as the Father is with Jesus. But you know what? Jesus isn't the only one who knows the power of unity in the church. The devil knows the power of unity in the church. And so his plot and his plan throughout history has been, I'm going to try to keep the people of God divided. I'm going to try to put conflict in their way. I'm going to make it so that they hold grudges towards one another. I'm going to make it so that they're easily offended. And when somebody comes to them and says something, they're going to hold a grudge for years and years and they'll never come together. They'll never unite. They'll never work as one. They'll never move forward as one. If I can, cheat, if I can keep the church divided, then the church of God won't go anywhere. It'll have little power. The devil knows this. 
So the devil keeps us at odds with one another, with topics about masks and vaccines and political parties and social media rants and raves that we go off on. The devil wants to keep us divided, knowing that we are called to love one another despite our disagreements, despite our conflict, and because we, we're part of the same family. We're part of the same body. We're supposed to move up as one. Let me share with you four truths about unity that we see here in John chapter 17. <clears throat> the first one is this. Church unity is patterned after divine unity. What do, what do I mean by that? In verse 22, it says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. See, before the beginning of time, there was a divine relationship between three persons. And uh, there are three, we believe in the Bible, when we read the Bible, we know that we serve one God, that he is one, one being. We serve one God, the creator of the whole world, but we also can read in the Bible that there are three distinct persons of God, that he reveals himself as a creator of all things, as the Father. We also see God as the Son, Jesus, when he comes on earth, that he is God in the flesh. He's incarnate. And we also see in Acts chapter 2 that God sends his spirit, himself in the form of the Holy Spirit. So in the church, we call this the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are three distinct persons. They are not one person with three different roles or three different personalities. They are three distinct persons. But they are so united in love with each other, they are so united in mission and in purpose that they become one. In John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word. It's referring to Jesus. That the Word, Jesus, was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Trinity is a difficult thing uh, for even the most advanced theologians and scholars to try to explain and try to comprehend. It's a, it's a difficult topic to, to, to discuss, but we see in Scripture that there are three distinct beings, each with unique roles and differences. But what makes the Trinity so incredible is that the three persons are so united in love and in purpose and mission that they, they appear as one. We think that it's cute when a couple has been together for so long, or maybe, a, you know, there's two best friends, and they're, they're together, and, and, and they're so uh, one in thought and in mind that, that they can even finish each other's sandwiches. Oh, yes, <laughs> sentences. That's what I'm talking about. No, they're so, they're so united. That was a frozen joke for all you parents out there. <laughs> they're so united that when you ask, they're so singular-minded and in, in, in in their love for one another, and they know each other so well that when you ask one person one thing, you're going to get the same answer from the other person. It's kind of a, it's just a small glimpse of what the Trinity is like, that when you ask one of the three persons a question, or his desires, or his heart, or his love, or his purpose and mission, you're going to get the same answer from the rest of them. They are so united. They are so one. They know all there is to know about one another and can move and Perfect synchronization at times. How many of you have ever run a three-legged race before? A three-legged race is when you tie one of your legs to somebody else and you put your arm around their shoulder and you begin to run and compete against other people who are tied to another person and, and, and you try to cross the finish line first. And if you can just imagine for a minute 
If you can imagine for a minute the Trinity in a three-legged race, they're all strapped together and they're running together. But when you look at the Trinity, they're so in sync with one another, they're so united that it, it appears as if there's one person running. They look like there's one being right there because they're so, they're so in sync with one another. As the Father as, as Jesus and the Father move together, he desires for the church to move in perfect harmony, that we would win every race that we compete in, that we would be so in sync with one another and so consumed with love and compassion for one another that when the world looks at the church, they see the body of Jesus. They see one person. They see one being, one entity, the person of Jesus Christ. That's what the church is made to do is to come together united so that when the world looks at us, they see the person of Jesus Christ. The second truth about unity is this. Church unity is a witness to the world. In verse 23, it says, Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. See, this kind of unity, it doesn't exist in the world. This kind of unity doesn't exist anywhere else. The world is divided into nations, it's divided into races. It's divided into denominations, into political parties. But the unity that Jesus prayed for, it rises above all of these divides and compels us to come together as a heavenly family because we all have the same blood running through our veins now. It's the blood of Jesus. It unites us. It makes us one family. It's thicker than the physical. It's a spiritual family that we are all a part of. I'm reading um, the Bonhoeffer biography. Has anybody read this book before? I'm in the middle of it right now. It's, um, it's the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German uh, pastor and theologian. He was a martyr, uh, and he was part of the, uh, the plot to assassinate Hitler, and he eventually was killed um, for, for his involvement in that. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a man of God, and he was a, a, a deep thinker and a deep theologian. And after World War I... He made a trip to New York, and uh, he befriended a Frenchman. Of all people, after World War I, for a German and a Frenchman to be seen together would have been a pretty radical thing to see. But Bonhoeffer, one of his good friends in New York, was this Frenchman. And in 1930, there was a book that was released that became a feature film that was called All Quiet on the Western Front, and it won lots of awards. And uh, it was so influential, and it was kind of a... It, it, was a, um, it, it was an anti-war uh, movie um, and showed just the atrocities and the heartbreak of war. And it was so influential that the Nazis actually banned the movie from Germany. They didn't want anybody seeing it. They didn't want anybody witnessing it. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer happened to be in New York, and it was playing everywhere. So he went, and he saw All Quiet on the Western Front with his French friend. And they walk into the theater, and there's this scene that impacted him so much. It's when the, the hero of the story, who's a German, is in the trenches, and there's these Frenchmen who are jumping over this trench, and at one point, he's stuck in this trench. There's, there's fire, you know, there's, there's bullets flying from either side, and he's stuck in this trench, and he reaches up, and he grabs a Frenchman and pulls him down, and he stabs the Frenchman, and he wounds the Frenchman, but, but this Frenchman is slowly dying. And he's trying to, he's now killed this Frenchman who's lying in the pit, and he's trying to get out of this trench, but he can't because there's bullets flying all around him. So he's stuck to stay in this trench, watching this Frenchman writhe in pain and die for hours. 
And so he's in this trench watching this Frenchman die, and eventually he starts, his heart starts to break for this, this man. And he goes over to this man and starts to caress his face and starts to, uh, starts to stroke his head and say, I want to help you. I want to help you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And he can see that the man is dying, and he reaches into his wallet and sees a picture of the Frenchman's wife and his daughter, and his heart is just breaking. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And as Dietrich and his French friend are in the theater, they're weeping because they have this love for one another, and it's, it's because they're both believers. It's because they both belong to the family of God, and they're witnessing what happens in war, and their heart's just breaking. And as they're weeping, there's these Americans sitting around them, snickering at them, making fun of them because they think it's silly that this French and German are crying together as they're watching this movie. See, the world doesn't know the type of unity that we have as a church. The world has no framework for it. But as the people of God, we belong to a family together that is thicker than blood. It's thicker than nationality. It's thicker than race and denominations. The church is often criticized for its hypocrisy and the way that it can ostracize different groups of people. Today, I, I think the church can sometimes be known more for what we hate than what we are called to love. We're called to love people. We're called to love one another. We're called to rise above all of those divides and show the world a compassion that doesn't exist. Show the world a unity that doesn't exist. Imagine if the world witnessed the church come together across racial and national denominational divides and serve one another and regard one another as more important than ourselves. How would the world be different? How do you think the church is doing at this? at being united, at being one. We have a long ways to go, I think, but I believe that it's possible. The third truth is this. Church unity is preparation for heaven. Church unity is preparation for heaven. John, the Apostle John, he wrote the book of Revelation, and he has this vision in Revelation where he's before the throne room, and this is what he experiences. In Revelation 7, 9, he says this. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand. Let me tell you something, church. You are going to spend eternity with people very, 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 very different from you. When we get to eternity, there will be White people, black people, Hispanic people, Arab people, Native Americans, Asians, every tribe, every nation, every people, every language will be represented in eternity. Eternity will be filled with all kinds of people bound together by one singular love for Jesus. And the church is supposed to look like that today. The church is supposed to be a reflection of what we're going to be experiencing in heaven. A, a, a culmination of every people, every tribe bound together by their love and passion to spread the gospel of Jesus across the world. Church, I, we've got to get this right because we've, we, we, we have got to get this right because we are so divided by racism in this country. We are so divided by denominations, by opinions and assumptions and prejudice 
that we have towards other people. And church, I, I say this with all compassion and all, I, I love you and I, I wanna see the church. If the church does not get this right, then nobody else will. Because the church is the only entity that has something greater to come together upon. Nobody else has this. And if we are going to start rebuilding racial divides, if we're going to start repairing relationships with our brothers and sisters uh, from other cultures, we have to start first with ourselves and ask ourselves introspectively, God, is there any assumption that I make about that culture, about that person, about that skin color? God, is there any prejudice that I have? And your first reaction might be, no, there's not. But I would encourage you, my wife and I in 2020 went through a, a kind of a, an eye-opening transformation during this Black Lives Matter movement. It was a heated debate. It was this heated thing. But, but we wanted to be honest with ourselves. And we just asked the Lord, God, is there anything about this that is true in my life? Do I ever cross the street when I see a certain person walking towards me? Do I ever make assumptions about an individual when I see them at their house or in their car or at the store? God, is there anything like that in my life? And get rid of it. I don't want it anymore. Church, if we're going to see healing and, and racism, if we're going to see healing and these bridges rebuilt, it has to start with, with us, the individual. It has to start with the church. Because we have the one thing that brings us together across all of those divides. It's going to take humility. It's going to take an opportunity to invite people out to coffee and say, just let me hear your story. Let me hear your life. Tell me about, tell me about yourself. I want to be, I want to get closer to you. I want to know your story. I want to, I want to make friends outside of my skin color, outside of my culture, outside of my denomination. Because that's what we're called to do, church. We're called to be a family above all of those divides. Imagine for a moment what it would have looked like for Jesus to call this group of people to follow him. Jesus was calling these devout Jews to follow him, but then he also called a tax collector to follow him, which the devout Jews hated. He also called Samaritans to follow him, which everybody hated. He called... He called uh, a rich young ruler to follow him. He said, go sell your possessions, leave everything, and come follow me. He called the working class to follow him. He called the academic elite to follow him. He called all of them to follow them. How offended do you think a devout Jew would have been to be asked by this rabbi to come follow him, and then he goes at, this, at the same time, asks a ta tax collector, and, and brings the two of them together, and they hate each other, and he says to both of them, look, from now on, this is your brother. This is your brother. I want you to love one another. I want you to serve one another. I want you to consider yourself less important than the other person. And I want you to sacrifice for the other person. I want you to understand that you need this tax collector in your life. That you need this Jewish man in your life. You need to come together, put aside all your conflict, all of your differences, all of your disagreements. Come together because you are now a part of a bigger family. How difficult would that have been for these people to come together and know that this is now my family? I've been on a few missions trips before, and I'm always surprised by the bond that I feel with other believers in other countries. How many of you have been on a missions trip, and you go, and you, and you meet a, a fellow brother or sister in Christ overseas, and you feel connected to them? 
You feel like this is part of my family. I don't know you. You have a different culture, a different language. You like different music. The way you do church is completely different, but you're my brother and sister, and I can feel it. I know that I have a bond with you. Church unity is preparation for heaven. What we're going to see in in eternity, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people, is supposed to be happening here on earth in the church. In fact, it is one of the greatest tools, the greatest witnesses that we can have to the world when the church comes together and unites. The fourth thing is this. Church unity results in a life of love. Verse 26 says, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Church unity results in a life of love. Some anonymous author I, I read, maybe you know who this is. I don't know who this, who this was, but they wrote this. Loving the whole world is easy. Loving your neighbor is hard. <laughs> How true is that? Loving the whole world is easy. But when you have to love your neighbor you, you're going to see them all the time. They're going to they're gonna offend you. They're going to ask you questions. They're going to prod. They're going to poke. They're going to really get to know you. Loving the world is easy. Loving your neighbor is hard. I have kind of a confessional story that I want to tell you, church. A couple uh, months ago, I was staring out the window of my house, and I saw a man on his bike. He, I just assumed he was homeless. He, he looked you know, kind of tore up, and he was on his bike, and he, he was riding past this car that was parked on the side of the street, and as he's on his bike, he's, he checks the door handle, and it's locked, and so he goes around to the other side of the car and opens the door, and he pokes his head in, and he starts grabbing stuff and shoving it in his coat pocket, and I want to be a good neighbor here, and I want to, you know, I want to look out for my neighbor, and so I'm thinking, this guy is stealing from this car, and the man happened to be a black man, and I run out there, and I say, hey, excuse me, and I confront him. I, I said, excuse me, is that your car? And he goes, yeah, why? I said, well, I'm just trying to be a good neighbor, and I, it kind of looked like you were trying to steal from the car because, you know, you're on your bike, and I just, just, I just kind of assumed that you were trying to steal. And he goes, what? What are you, this is, you better be calling the police. And he starts to curse at me, and he's really angry at me, and he's, he's cursing at me all the way as I'm going back to my house. And I'm convinced that, that it's not his car. And I, but I don't know, so I didn't call the police. And so I, I just don't know what to do. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm flustered, and I'm angry, and I'm upset because he's accusing me of being a racist all of a sudden. And, I'm, and now I'm, I'm searching my heart going, did I do that because I have these assumptions, because I, I'm prejudiced in any way? Like, and I'm asking the Lord to, to reveal this to me. And, and a couple days later, I see him in that car driving up and down the street and parking in the same spot. Turns out the man is my neighbor. He lives across the street from me, and I'm new to the neighborhood, and just, I just assumed that he was trying to steal something, and so I, I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm watching him drive this car, and I'm thinking, okay, I've got, I got two choices now. I can either stick my nose up and think, I was right to assume that. What he was doing looked sketchy, and I can just go about my life. Yeah, it's going to be a little awkward every time I see him, but I can... I can just, you know, I have the feeling that I was justified in my actions. Or I can eat a big slice of humble pie and go talk to him and apologize and try to rebuild a bridge that I have broken. So I was on a walk with my kids, and I see him riding his bike towards me, and I'm thinking, oh, I should turn the street. I should just turn and go down the other street. 
And uh, the Lord just said, no, do the hard thing. Do the right thing. He's coming right at me. And so I stop him. Excuse me, sir. I was the guy who yelled at you as you were going through your car. Do you remember me? And he goes, yeah, what do you want? And I said, I just wanted to say I'm sorry that I made an assumption of you that was wrong. I was trying to be a good neighbor, but I haven't been here for very long, so I didn't know who you were and what you were doing. And I just wanted to apologize and tell you that uh, I just want to be a good neighbor and, and, and get along with you. And, and, uh, and please let me know if you need anything. And he was like, okay, thanks. He was kind of like trying to scoot me out the door. And as I'm about to leave, he goes, you know, when you came and said that, I was having a really bad day. And when you, when you said that, it just made it even worse. And I overreacted. And I'm sorry, too, for saying all those curse words. And I was like, well, that's okay. I, I totally understand it. And I, uh, I left, and, and now we see each other, and we wave to each other on the street. And he'll ride his bike by, and I wave, and he'll wave back. He'll see me with my kids. And I'm trying to rebuild this bridge, church. I'm trying to do the hard thing, eat a big slice of humble pie, and, and rebuild something. It takes humility. It takes, it takes laying yourself aside and making the other person more important, making the relationship more important, because here's the reality is when it comes to relationships, you can either be right or you can either be in right relationship. Your goal, if it's to be right, that's going to get sticky. That's going to get messy. But if your goal is always to be in right relationship, even if you feel like, I, I, I know I'm right. I know deep down that I'm doing the right. Even if you feel that way, the goal is relationship. The goal is to be one with your fellow brothers and sisters. If you are holding a grudge, if you are bitter towards anybody, we've got to let that go if we're going to heal. We've got to let it go if we want the world to look at the body of Christ and see the person of Jesus. Do you want to be right or do you want to be in right relationship? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, the church is the church only when it exists for others. Not dominating, but helping and serving. Is this even possible is it even possible to be so united like this to be so together like this that the world sees the person of jesus christ is it possible because i look around the world and the, the american church and go man we've got a long way to go but we see in acts chapter 2 that it is possible acts chapter 2 gives us this picture of hope what the first century church would look like and you might say well they didn't have as many differences they didn't have as many divisions. No, no, that's not true at all. In fact, the first century church probably had more. These, these devout Jews who believed their entire life that they were the chosen people of God are now being told by the apostles and by the, the words of Jesus that, that these Gentile believers, these Greeks and these Romans, I'm now supposed to treat them as the children of God as well. How messed up is that? Huh? And these, the, the church, first century church had lots of different things. There were, there were, uh, there were, there were divisions in theology and, and, and different mindsets. And, and Paul had to constantly write all, to all these different churches and bring them back together and try to, try to let them understand, hey, listen, there's something more important here. Jesus asks us to be one. He asks us to be united. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. If you're there, let's read this together. Just 42 through 47, it says this. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer 
And a deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place, just like we're doing today. And get this, they shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Every day, people were getting saved because they looked at the church and said, I don't know what's going on there, but they love each other in a way that nobody else loves each other. And I want to be a part of that family. Church, you and I have a very important role to play in witnessing to the world. And it doesn't just involve having conversations over coffee or knocking on your neighbor's door and inviting them to church. It involves, as well, the church coming together, laying aside our differences, our arguments, our bitterness, our grudges towards one another, because that is what I believe is going to have the most impact to showing the world what the family of God is supposed to look like. Some of you may not believe this, but someone who loves Jesus and obeys the Bible is better at caring for you than you are at caring for yourself. Did you hear that? Somebody who loves Jesus and, and, and obeys the Bible, who loves God, they are better at caring for you than you are at caring for yourself. If we all care for one another, then each of our needs would be met. That sounds like my daughter out there. <laughs> if we all cared for one another, then each of our needs would be met. That's the power of a unified church that Jesus recognized and that he prayed for. So real quick, the four, four truths, once again, are this. Church unity is patterned after divine unity. Church unity is a witness to the world. It is preparation for heaven. It results in a life of love. So how can we begin to unite? How can we begin to come together and look more like that united church that Jesus prayed for? Three things really quick. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. But the first thing, these are all really practical, practical things. The first thing is this. Seek forgiveness and grant forgiveness. Seek and grant forgiveness. Don't hold on to grudges. If you have a problem with someone, there is a way to graciously have a conversation with them. And if someone approaches you and confronts you about something you did or said to them, don't get offended. Don't, don't get defensive about it. Listen to them and apologize for the things that you've done wrong. Like I said before, the goal isn't to be right and to justify your actions. The goal is to have relationship with this person. It's a hard thing to do. Seek forgiveness and grant forgiveness. Second thing is this. Ask God for patience and compassion. I remember when I was working at the first church that I ever started working for, it was East Hill Church in Gresham, Oregon. I was the worship, um, the worship director for the youth ministry. We had a big youth ministry, so I was the worship director. But then, after a couple years, I became the high school pastor. And I didn't expect to become a high school pastor. I thought I'd be involved in worship for the rest of my life. And I got into high school ministry, and I, I quickly realized the short fuse that I had with some of these kids and that I didn't have the compassion that I needed to pastor these kids well. So I prayed and asked God, God, would you give me compassion for these kids? Would you break my heart 
for the things that break your heart? Would you give me eyes and give me a heart for these kids to love them because I can't love them or I don't have the capacity right now. I need you to enlarge my tank. Make it, make it fuller, God. Give me the compassion for these kids. And over the next few months, I began to experience this compassion for these kids. And I, I felt like, I felt like I was their spiritual mentor. I was their spiritual father, and they were my spiritual kids, and I just wanted to invest and pour into them. And, and it was only because I was asking the Lord. I was spending time in his presence. Some of us need to ask God for a larger capacity to offer patience and compassion because people are difficult at times. We are difficult at times. We're hard to put up with. But your tank will only get larger and fuller when you spend time in the presence of Jesus. You can't get that anywhere else. You have to get it in the secret place. When you spend time with the person of Jesus, your capacity to love, your capacity to offer patience to people, it grows when you're in the presence of God. Here's why. Because number three is this. Remember how Jesus loved you first. When you're in the presence of God, you begin to understand, wow, Jesus loved me even when I was terrible. Jesus, you didn't deserve the love of Jesus, but he offered it to you despite the fact that you were an enemy of God. Remember that God loved you first, despite all of your mistakes, despite everything you did wrong. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells this shocking parable of of this servant who owed his master uh, some money, and it was it was a large amount of money. It was just millions and millions of dollars. I'm paraphrasing this 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 parable this the servant owed this master millions of dollars and the master said throw him in jail and his family in jail until he can pay off his debt and he begged and and pleaded with his master and said have compassion on me give me more time and i will pay you back in full and the master had compassion on his servant and forgave all of his debts and said you're free to go you don't owe me anything and when the servant went home he had a servant who owed him just a fraction just a tiny little amount of money And he said to that servant, send him to jail, send his family to jail until he can pay back everything. And that man said the same thing. He said, give me more time. Give me compassion. I asked for compassion. Just let me, me, give me more time to settle my score. And the servant uh, of the master, he said, no, throw him in jail and, and, and throw his family in jail. And he had him put in prison until he paid off his debt. And when the master heard that his servant was, who was forgiven, And all of his debt was canceled. When he heard that his servant had done this, he called him in. And this is what he says in verse 32. He said, you wicked servant. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And here's the shocking part. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. We have got to understand that the debt that was forgiven for for us, that the debt that we owed was far greater than any offense or anything that, that people could throw at us. And the Lord, God has forgiven you and I for those debts, and he invites us into this intimate relationship with the creator himself. So how much more are we to love and care for those around us, for our brothers and sisters. Jesus surrendered everything to love you. His whole life was poured out to serve you, and we can't forget that Jesus was God. 
He was the creator of all things. He, if, if anybody had a reason to say, no, I don't want that filth around me, it was Jesus, the perfect, holy, blameless one. How much more are we called to love those who were equally made in the image of God as we are? You're no better than anybody else. You are no better than the person to your left or right. You are no better than people in other cultures and other denominations and other races and other nations. You are no better than them. You, you were created in the image of God just as they were. They are your brothers and sisters, and we are called to show the world what the love of Jesus looks like by loving each other and being united. The church is better together. We need to look for opportunities to serve one another. Would you stand with me? Let me pray over you. Father, this is difficult. It's hard. There are people in our lives that have said things, have done things to us, and maybe some of you are here and you, you would say, Pastor, if, if, you would, if you even knew what this person did to me, what they said to me, what they did to my children, what, what, how it had affected me, you would be singing a different tune. God, I pray that if there's anybody in this room that are, that's wounded and that's hurt, God, would you begin to graciously convict them of that grudge? And I pray, Lord, that we would begin to seek forgiveness and we would be granting forgiveness well. Jesus, that, that you would give us the capacity to have compassion and patience for people who think completely different than us, who have different political views, who are, are different culturally, that have different skin colors. God, would you give us a, a, a larger capacity to love people, to be your church? It's difficult, God. Jesus, thank you for praying for us, and I believe that Jesus is still praying that over his church, that he's sitting on the throne and he's interceding for his people that they would be one. God, I thank you that you are the, a supernatural God and you can bring all hearts together through any wound, through any hurt, through any pain. Jesus, bring your church together. Continue to build your church just as you looked Peter in the face and you said, I will build the church. I will do it. Jesus, build your church. Do a work in us. Help us be a part of that. We love you, Jesus. We give you all praise in your name. And the church said, amen. amen. Next Sunday is going to be part two of this message. So I hope to see you all there. God bless you. Have a wonderful Sunday, and we'll see you later.